0: If you paid attention to uh, all Marine Radio, uh, you know that we've talked uh, a bunch about um, the 15th MU AV accident that happened a year ago last week. And uh, on the anniversary, on the one-year anniversary last Thursday, uh, the families of those eight Marines and one Sailor uh, got together in Oceanside, California, had a press conference. And so I want to introduce to you one of the, uh, one of the attorneys um, in that group for that group of people. And uh, he's a former Marine. And I know people are going to say, Mac, there's no such thing as former Marines. Oh, there really is. Okay. So we get the point. Once a Marine, always a Marine. But he's no longer a Marine. He used to be one. Uh, his name is uh, Tim Loringer. And is it Tim or Timothy?
1: Tim is fine.
0: Tim Thank is fine. All right. So, Tim, first of all, uh thanks for coming on and uh, and doing this. Uh, appreciate it. And uh before we can kind of figure out if uh if you're a good guy or a bad guy, we've got to uh we've got to uh, hear about you because as Marines, you know, you got to pass the sniff test for
1: us. So, um first of all, born and raised where? Sure. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. And I absolutely understand. Uh, I was born here. I was born in Southern California. Um, I moved around the country a little bit growing up, lived in Florida and Arizona and New York a little bit. And then uh, when I gra- graduated high school in Torrance, California, I enlisted in the Marine Corps. That was in 1988. Uh, and uh, Okay,
0: hold on. How does the Marine Corps get on your radar? So you're rolling around Southern California, you're moving around as a kid, um, the Marine Corps is not for everybody. Um, certainly not for the faint of heart. How does it get on your radar?
1: Uh, it, interesting story. Um, I, I grew up in really strange circumstances with a father who was alcoholic, uh, drug addicted. And so I spent a lot of my life without any real, uh, stability and direction. And I, I craved it. And I knew from a young age that I needed to go into the military, uh, I was a boy scout. I was uh, in the Civil Air Patrol. Uh, as I got older and uh, I knew I was going in and I woke up one day and I uh, thinking about the Marine Corps uh, and for a couple of years I prepared myself to join. I it, it was uh, it was my destiny, I have to say that.
0: You were that kid? You seem yeah. like you seem like a normal human being though. You don't seem like that kid.
1: Well, I'll tell you, you know, the Marines uh, you know, it was an interesting trip for me and uh but i needed to i needed to prove something to myself right. this was really about about like i I need to accomplish this this it was a incredible challenge and uh and I needed it for me i mean and and to show probably to show some other people that i i had uh intestinal fortitude to accomplish you know a difficult task so uh well you know so i, mean, I truth be told um.
0: A, the way you grew up isn't that uncommon. And I know that because of this, the, the work I do with um, in, in the area of trauma. It's a lot more common than we would think. One of the great epiphanies for me is I've traveled around and spoken um, to probably close to 60,000 people. Uh, the vast majority of those in the Marine Corps um, is the amount of child abuse and sexual abuse among men in the Marine Corps. And it's been shocking to me the number of Marines that come up and tell you that they were abused as a child or they were sexually abused as a child. And when you think about it, the all volunteer force, you know, um, is a, is a magnet for, you know, pretty high functioning people who don't want to go to college and want to get out of town. Hmm. That's an interesting little combination. (laughs) And it's not because they can't do college intellectually for most of them. Academics in their home, not, not emphasize so much. Uh, so they're more than intellectually capable of it, but they're looking for a way out. And so I think yeah. it surprises a lot of people when I, I put up statistics that show how much trauma exists in Marines that, have, that are part of the all-volunteer force um, before they ever, ever, you know, lace up a pair of boots in the Marine Corps. It's pretty, 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 pretty astounding. I think it surprises most people.
1: Sure. Yeah, very interesting. And I read some of this. Information that you link to on your page uh, about trauma and and uh and it's it 's a very interesting subject and and it makes sense to me
0: well well, let me tell you you're you 're a consumer man of course, it would make sense to you and yeah. uh no and but again I, yeah. I meet so many people like you i mean and and you know and and the turbulence I had in my life, I was looking for better, I wanted to be part of something. You know that one. I want to be some part part of something good, like you, right? Something solid. Yes. And uh, and I saw the, you know everything I'd seen and read about in the, about the Marine Corps. I I knew the Marine Corps was the best team I'd ever seen in my life. And I uh, my dad used to manage the Padres, and I'd see Marines in Southern California, as you I'm sure you did here growing up mm-hmm. here, and they always were impressive. And I was like, man, that's I want to be part of something good like that. So, and uh, as an aside. Really interesting. Sure. So you, you joined the Marine Corps, and what do you do in the Marine Corps?
1: I went in—aviation was my big uh, passion, so I went into, uh, into aircraft maintenance. Uh, I was with uh, VMFP3 at El Toro. Of course, I got a great duty station. And uh, <laughs> so I was in South Carolina, then I came here permanently stationed at, at El Toro. Uh, with uh, an F four squadron, the last Marine Corps F four squadron back in 1988. Okay, um, let's
0: let's do a, a couple of footnotes. First of all, for those of you who don't know where El Toro is because it doesn't exist yeah. anymore, um, tell everybody where it is, Tim.
1: It's it's essentially in what Irvine, California. I think that was our mailing address, but Irvine. Um, Right in Orange County, so yeah. right, <laughs> right area. where
0: the five and the four hundred five meet. That's right, right. In Orange County is where El Toro was. I mean, Aviation Marines had the best duty station, and then the helicopter guys were over at Tustin, okay. which is like where I live—Costa Mesa, Irvine, <laughs> Newport Beach area. And these guys, and this is back when Orange County wasn't as populated as now. It is. uh, yeah it was pretty good quality of life now next the f four if you yeah. if you listening have never heard what an f four sounds like, you need to go to an air show when one's flying and listen to it how would you describe it Tim
1: oh it is just incredible <laughs> i mean you think that an f eighteen or uh you know an f eighteen sounds powerful when it's in full afterburners the f four is has the most incredible engines that there are so i mean it's it's a life-altering experience
0: yeah let me tell you yeah. you when you hear it you're like oh something bad's about to happen to somebody yeah. because it sounds like a behemoth heading in your direction and uh yeah it's uh they're amazing when i was on the aircraft carrier the ranger we had a couple um rf4s fly out yeah and that do, was F- it,
1: rf4bs
0: yeah and do some work with us and um you know, and they were uh, they were doing what reconnaissance stuff, and and they had this weird looking nose on them at that point with all their yep. camera stuff in it. But man, when you heard this thing take off and land, pff, it was all, it was awesome. And then I just remember um, driving, and um, and this is even as late as the '90s because they were still in service, and uh, you'd see them flying around Miramar. The Navy still had them. And uh they might have been in the reserves by then, but when you'd see an F four, um, whatever variant of it, I mean, when it came over the freeway and you'd be driving underneath it, you could feel it. It they're they're <laughs> awesome. The um so how long so you join in what year? Eighty eight. Eighty eight. And you get out when?
1: I got out in late ninety two actually.
0: Late ninety two. So Got a high school education, and had you made up your mind? Uh, you said you had a passion for aviation. Any thought of becoming a pilot or doing anything like that, or did you have your sights set on other things? What did uh, what was the plan? Getting out of the
1: Marine Corps. Yeah, um, I wanted to go to college. I mean, I wanted to go get a degree. Back then, I thought maybe an English literature degree, um, but that was my goal. My goal was I, you know, I had had a good experience. I deployed to that operation desert storm and shield so i was there for nine months it was you know quite an experience and uh, and so i was ready to get out and uh, and start my journey through college so i went to college uh, i used my the, back then the old gi bill which didn't pay a ton but i went to a state college i went to california state university northridge which uh, offers a great education for a price that makes sense and, uh, and I got my degree and then I decided to go on to law school and I attended law school in Los Angeles at Southwest. So, how, so,
0: so that's not a, you know, um, how does law school get on your radar? When does, how do you make that decision that, yeah, I want to be a lawyer?
1: Yeah. Um. You know, I never really thought about it growing up until uh, until after I got out of the Marine Corps. I met uh, my wife, who I've been now married to for 25 years, uh, who was working in the legal field. And she got me my first job out of the Marine Corps as a clerk in a law office. And I started to see the work that they did. And I thought, this is what I've got to do this. This is um, it's incredible uh, being out here, able to help people. Um, You know, lawyers get a bad rap in a lot of ways. And to be honest with you, it's deserved. There are times when it's absolutely deserved, Um, but but lawyers do a very good job generally of 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 helping people who really don't have the resources to help themselves uh, and to to find justice for wrongdoing and to protect them from people who are overreaching, uh, using the law to their advantage. So when I saw this happening, I I knew, uh, especially after being in service, uh, that I was my personality, my what I like to do is I like to help people. I think that's what we do most basically in the Marine Corps is we're out there to provide a service. And uh, and that's what I wanted. So I, so the law made a lot of sense and I decided to go for it.
0: So now did your future wife hire you because she wanted to marry you or did she was that like you just seemed like a guy who could do the do the work?
1: Well, she got. She didn't hire me. I think she got me a job at a firm that she was new up. Uh, so he was like, right. here, you let She's them try it out. Got and it, it. Got it. And see how it so works out.
0: Sounds like a smart woman. The yeah. um. So talk to us about what kind. Of, what kind of law do you
1: practice? Okay. Yeah. So I right now um the main focus of my practice is on uh is representing people in the military and families of those who served in the military. Uh, in aviation accidents that have occurred. Um, I do other work. I do major transportation, so that involves uh, trucks and and buses and trains. But the majority of my practice is military aviation. I also uh, do some work. I have done some work. Uh, For example, the AAV fire on Camp Pendleton Pendleton several years ago. Uh, I worked on that case and represented some of the Marines. Which is is when
0: AAV... Um, hits a gas line. The spark from the metal, combined with the gas leak, starts a flamethrower, and um, just an awful, awful, awful um, incident. And my recollection is nobody was killed in that. Am I? Am I right?
1: Yes, that's correct. Thankfully, but, everybody got yeah. But serious burns.
0: Sir, yeah. And and so, hey, can you give us an update? How does that? I mean, are you still litigating it? How does
1: that turn out, ultimately? Well, the, what we did is we filed a lawsuit against um, San Diego Gas and Electric, and we were with the idea that they are were primarily responsible for maintaining the gas lines, the natural gas lines out at Camp Pendleton. And what we learned from going through the discovery, that is uh, requesting documents from the Marine Corps and documents from, from the gas company, uh, we learned that... Uh, that they were, that all that they were, they being Southern Gas and Electric, all they could do was bring the gas to Camp Pendleton. And then it's basically distributed through gas lines that were installed by the Marine Corps many years ago. And what we thought was, if they were not maintained properly, not marked properly, not buried to the appropriate depth, that they were responsible for these Marines uh, come in contact with the line uh, and and the fire starting. But unfortunately based on the law and the information we have it turned out that the liability really rested with the marine corps decision not to replace those gas lines which southern uh which san diego gas and electric uh recommended that they did do a long time ago so we weren't able to continue with that lawsuit uh there is some of it uh some of the cases are still going on appeal um but uh but as of now the the cases are over
0: got it you also mentioned um I think the 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 KC130 um that crashed in Mississippi um I you know and, I and and I I don't recall seeing ultimately uh the final investigation of that what was the ultimately what was the cause of that crash
1: Yeah this is the 2017 KC130 crash that occurred uh over Mississ- in Mississippi um ultimately what happened is I'll tell you very quickly what caused the crash. Okay. So uh, The number two engine, one of the propeller blades on the number two engine failed so that it broke off near the base. It hit the fuselage. And then there was a cascade of failures that, that force and the aircraft uh, basically broke into three parts and, and crashed, uh, starting from 25,000 feet. That's where this happened. The investigation showed that the propeller blade had gone through overhaul in in 2011 uh, at an Air Force facility in Georgia. And uh, in a nutshell, they found that the Air Force, the civilian Air Force personnel who did the work failed to follow the proper procedures, and so that the, the, um, the corrosion and the cracking that may have been existed at the time of the overhaul wasn't discovered and removed. And it was put back into service, it was put onto this aircraft, and then it failed. So the the air, the Navy and Marine Corps essentially put all of the blame on these civilian employees of of the Air Force uh, for the crash. Very sad situation. I, I represent 10 families of Marines and the Navy corpsmen who died in that crash. And we are still working, uh, working on that case now, four years later. Um we hope to have a way forward soon, uh, but we are, you know, I can't get into the the real details, but we are working as hard as we can. We're dedicated to helping these families find justice.
0: Um, talk to us about um, the press conference that was held last week. Um, I, I watched it as it streamed live on Facebook. And I have to tell you that um, just gut-wrenching to watch those families. Stant, you know all all the different mothers who got up and talked about their sons, uh, different family members who got up and spoke, um, and absolutely uh, heartbreaking doesn't even do it. It's not even the appropriate phraseology. Um, sure. Talk about talk about uh, you know why you were there, in what capacity were you there, and and who you represent, and what you guys are looking to
1: do. Sure, um, I. You know, as one of the lawyers who's representing some of the families who are affected by this incredible tragedy, um, it was important for me to be there. You know, actually, today is the one year anniversary of the of the incident. And yesterday we wanted to, uh, you know, have a press conference to bring attention back to this situation. And 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 the attention that we want to bring to it is, you know, there's a couple of aspects. Of course, the report that came out well, let me go back for a sec first, I want to agree with you it, it's it 's absolutely devastating and and the families are suffering every day and they 're suffering every day because they don 't have closure yet they don 't have um, they understand that lots of of you know problems arose from from the leadership standpoint, but also um, there 's problems with the the vehicle itself and that 's what we are sort of focusing on in in our investigation is this, uh, the, you know, the amphibious vehicle um, failed in a number of respects. Uh, it, it should never have it should never have been uh, in service, and and or and it should have had alternative design elements to it that would help protect the Marines who uh, who are were on board, not only to prevent the the vehicle from either taking on water or allowing it to, you know pump the water out before it got to a critical condition, but also to make sure that they could get out of the vehicle in time. Um, So what what was our purpose in having the in this uh, this press conference? It was to, like I said, bring attention back to this and to let everyone know that this is not something that's just uh, going to be forgotten about, that a year has come and passed uh, and and people are out there working very hard on behalf of the families to find answers. And to do whatever we can to make sure this doesn't happen again. And that was the main focus.
0: There's something called the Ferris Doctrine. And I want you yeah. to explain it to us because anybody who watched, uh, like I did, and a lot of Marines did, the testimony of the Assistant Commandant, General Thomas, and, uh, and from Headquarters Marine Corps, Major General Olson's testimony, um, I don't know, a couple months ago. Um, the the issue of the Ferris Doctrine came up and a lot of elected representatives on the committee um, talked about how, uh, you know, that the Ferris Doctrine ought to be amended uh, for cases of gross misconduct. Uh, is there, can you give us an update on that? Is there anything coming of that or was that just political posturing?
1: I'll be honest. I saw the congressional meeting, you know, uh, conference yeah, hear, about this, and I was really amazed to see uh, the, you know, that someone get up there and really take responsibility, as, at least with words, to say we, we, the Marine Corps, we screwed this up. We are responsible for what happened. But I'll t- let me just give a little bit of background on the Ferris Doctrine, if I might. Uh-huh. Um, The Ferris Doctrine is something that I'm really very familiar with, and that's because of the work that I do, you know, representing the families of of people who've been killed or seriously injured, uh, whether they're in the Army or the Marine Corps, um, through numerous helicopter crashes, um, the kc 130 case. And Ferris obviously comes up in this situation. And what it means, here's what it means. There's something called the Federal Tort Claim Act, which is the law that says, if you're injured by an action of uh, of an employee of the, of the government, the United States government, you have the right to seek compensation for your injuries. So it's a legislative, it's a law, it's legislative, it's a law, it says you have the right to sue the government for compensation. Years ago, back in the 1950s, the Supreme Court um, was looking at a case called Ferris where somebody wanted to sue uh, the government uh, someone who was serving in the military. And the Supreme Court interpreted the Federal Tort Claim Act and the facts of the case to say, look, if you're in the military, uh, we can't have a judge second guessing the decisions that are made on the battlefield. Essentially, that, that's what it came down to. And so we can't have our leaders in the military fearing that they are going to be personally sued if they make a decision and somebody is killed or injured. Unfortunately, uh, and that is has been the law since. And we there have been many challenges to the law uh, to find carve-outs and exceptions uh, to allow people who serve in the military, who put their, their lives on the line every day, to seek compensation when someone is grossly negligent or when they are injured in a situation that is not related to combat. So that those excuses that they came up with for protecting the government don't apply, right? So if you get on a C-130 and you're just going to fly from the East Coast to the West Coast to be safely delivered to uh, to some training exercise or, or for some other purpose, you don't expect that some maintenance person in Georgia who wasn't paying attention to proper procedures um, allowed a defective propeller blade to be put on the aircraft and it fails and then you unfortunately you're killed you know, our position and is that the Ferris doctrine requires some modification. And so that what we've seen in the in the last year or so is some movement toward that. And that is in a situation where someone has been injured by medical malpractice, the government has said has set up a administrative process that you can follow. So if you or someone, you as someone in the military or a loved one is injured by a military doctor, you have the right to petition the government for compensation. So there is some movement to change the Paris Doctrine. Um, we hear legislators uh, or Congress people saying that they would like to do a modification. Uh, the court, the Supreme Court, uh, Justice um, Scalia, uh, you know, past uh, Justice Scalia has mentioned that he thought it was something that needed to be changed. And so uh, we we fight every day. We communicate with our you know, Congress people uh, to try and get this changed. It, it's really a terrible situation.
0: But out of that hearing, nothing subsequent to the hearing has you've seen that would tell you that it's gaining traction or it's something that um, is going to do anything but be a soundbite in a
1: uh, subcommittee hearing? Yes. Now, nothing has happened. Um, and I think that's probably, a, that's an accurate representation of what's happened. I, I feel like the, the chances of it changing are very slim. Um, it would have to be a legislative change. It's unlikely that the Supreme Court, especially the current um, the current sitting Supreme Court, is probably not interested in, in, in doing that change. They've said it has to be a legislative change. And it would be, you know, and what it needs is it needs a lot of attention. It needs us to communicate with our representatives and let them know that this is something that needs uh, needs to be changed. You know, we're doing what we can from a legal standpoint, but uh, it's really, really difficult and frustrating.
0: So, so the bottom line is that is a political thing that needs to happen if it were to happen and be anything more than a soundbite. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Talk to us about how you get involved in this case.
1: Well, I, because of the work that I do, I, I have, you know, people recommend, uh, from word of mouth, um, anytime a situation like this comes up. So if there's a helicopter crash or an airplane crash, or for example, the AAV sinking, um, I, a lot of times will get a call from family members who have, who really just have questions. They would just want to pick my brain a little bit and ask me about what I think about what has happened and whether or not there is something that can be done for them. And, uh, and so that's what happened here is I received calls from the families of some of the Marines uh, who died and, uh, and we talked and I gave them information and, and uh, ultimately some of them uh, decided to retain me to help them uh, with an investigation. Uh, I also, they also, uh, retained, uh, another law firm, Eric Dubin and Annie Della Donna, uh, very good lawyers, uh, were also retained so we started t- we got in contact with each other and started working together.
0: All right. So, um so you begin to go tell, tell t- t- is there anything unique um I mean you some of the cases you work on are extremely high profile, some are not. Is there yeah. anything unique about this particular um case?
1: Uh, well, it's, every case is unique. You know what I mean? Um, this is a,
0: you just sounded like a lawyer. You just sound like a lawyer right there. Okay. Every case is unique, but among, among uniqueness, right? No,
1: the, the, the fact is, is this any, is this case different from another military, you know, mishap? I hate to use the word mishap because I think it's just a terrible term, but a tragedy like this, um, every, I really don't know if it stands it stands out because um, of the number of people that were affected because of uh, the fact that once again, what we find is the military is forcing uh, its members to use equipment that is old and is decrepit and is has seen the end of its expected life as far as we're concerned. Um, And 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 these situations should never have happened. So we are compelled to really to look very hard into these cases, um, to be honest with you, you know, these are military cases are difficult, That they are expensive. We have to hire many experts to try and and help us to understand what went wrong. And because of the Ferris Doctrine, a lot of times we wind up uh, doing work uh, that is almost a bit on the pro bono side, you know, to help to help people understand where what has happened and and, and without sometimes being able to to really get them to justice. So the, these are very serious and important cases. There are very few lawyers out there who who have the resources uh, and the and the willingness to look hard and work hard for people. And uh, but we 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 do that. I as a Marine, uh, as a former Marine, <laughs> according to you, uh, I, it's really important to me. And, and, and it's work that I, I I'm compelled to do.
0: Got it. The, um, so what happened, um, last Thursday, um, um, tell me what the event was, was about and, and then what you guys are seeking now.
1: Okay. Yeah. So the the press conference was about, like I said, you know, bringing attention back to the situation and letting everyone know that there's a contemplated lawsuit against BAE, the current manufacturer of the. Of the aav and to say that there are changes that can be made to the vehicle that will keep people that will make it safer so that there isn't hopefully a repeat of what has happened what what happened last year Um, we thought it was important for the families i and i think that's the main goal here of having a press conference is really to let the marine that the families know and to let the fam, the, the Marine Corps community and the military com- community in general know that uh, that when something like this happens, there are people there are people out there who are willing to uh, to go to bat for them. And and, you know, just because the military did its investigation and came to some, some conclusions, took some steps um, to make to remove people from command or uh, or made some changes. Uh, to try and avoid this, that uh, that there's more work to be done, and uh, and that's what we're we're hoping to do. So,
0: so how do you go about doing this? And, and if uh, you can answer this or not I answer it, it, it won't bother me. Um, sure. How many different families do you represent?
1: I represent four families. Actually, I, I represent. Uh, the families of two Marines, and then I represent one of the parents of two Marines each. So if that makes sense that sometimes the lawyers represent different family members if there's a divorce or something. So I represent the fathers of two Marines and then the families of two others. Um, and, I, you know, I, I can I think I can tell you who I represent. Um, it, I represent the family of uh, the father of Marco uh, Barranco, uh, Lance Corporal Marco Barranco. Uh, I represent the father of Evan Bath, private first-class Evan Bath. Also, um, I represent uh, Peter and Lynn Ostrovsky, whose son uh, was private first-class Jack Ryan Ostrovsky. And also uh, Romelia Perez, whose son was Lance Corporal Guillermo Perez.
0: um... All right, so... talk to us about how this works now. Um you guys I mean had had your press conference and people can still I think um uh people can still find that online, yes?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay.
0: All right. And I'll post a link with this um with this uh, podcast so you will be able to find it. So I'll go run it down and put the link in in with this. Um so as as uh as this thing moves forward, right? Um Talk to me about you used a very specific term contemplated lawsuit what's uh, what's the significance of that language?
1: Yeah, well, that's just the plan the plan the plan is based on the information we have now that there were design there were design issues, there were maintenance issues uh, that should have been addressed before the tragedy happened. and those are the things that we'll focus on. Uh, in a lawsuit um, that names very likely, as was said at the at the press conference, BAE as the defendant. Um, a lawsuit is being is prepared. And what we will do is uh, file that in the federal court down in San Diego. And at some point, that will probably soon, I don't know the exact date of when it's going to be filed. Uh, but it will be served on BAE. And then we will start the process of, of litigating this. So that could happen anytime. So when I say contemplated, I just mean that's what's in the works.
0: Got it. It's planned. Got it. What do you want people to know? Um, what do you want people to know about this, Tim?
1: I want people to know and I, that what's most important to these families and, and what is really – and and I think we we've heard this during the press conference, but it's really worth emphasizing – the families every day are worried about other Marines. They're worried about their sons' colleagues who are putting their lives on the line. They want to make sure that this doesn't happen again. That is the absolute ultimate goal. If what comes out of this is a new design uh, for um, the cargo you know the, the cargo doors to open appropriately to give people a fighting chance to get out if there's an emergency, that is a win. To uh, make sure that um, that this that maintenance is done properly, that uh, that there's appropriate money spent by the military in making sure that Marines and other service members have the best possible equipment. That's a win. So this is really has nothing to do with what can be recovered for the families in a lawsuit. This is absolutely about safety. And and you know, unfortunately, what we can't do is hold is take the you know, take the government to task on this. We can't take them into court and and really expose to the world um, poor decision making that that occurred uh, that resulted in in these, these tragic deaths. Um, but but through the litigation, we can that some of that will be highlighted, and that's an important aspect of the case. But that's what I think is most important. We want. We want BAE to know that if they're going to make millions of dollars off of contracts with the U.S. government, that they have to make sure that safety is uh, is is critical. That is the most important aspect. Of course, there's issues of functionality and uh, and and the mission and the military has a unique, uh, you know, approach to to designing a vehicle like this. For example, it has to accomplish the job, but it also has to make sure that the people who are going to be using it are, are kept safe. Okay.
0: Got it. So, um, so what is next? What's the next thing we'll see?
1: Uh, well, the next thing you'll see is that, uh, they will, I'm sure there will be, it will be in the press that a lawsuit, uh, has been filed. Um, of course, you know, there it's, it's, it's possible that we will have some communications with BAE. Um, I don't, I can't disclose whether or not we have had any discussions with them, but there there will be some announcement that a lawsuit's been filed, and then the process will begin.
0: How long – you mentioned your work on other um, – like you say, I struggle to even find the right word – incidents, accidents slash incidents like this. Um, and accidents, I mean, I I know family members are just recoil from that word because they say this is not an accident. This is the logical outcome of a whole series of things that aren't done right. Um, so I'll just use the word incident. Um, these things, um, unfold over, over years, right? Professional lawyers, corporations have, you know, have big budgets and, and here you have family members trying to do the right thing. Um, what they believe is the right thing. So, um, how long do these take? I mean, it, I mean, you, you, I know you don't have an answer for that, but um, if you were going to advise somebody generally, how you know, is, do you have you know three to five years to 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 see any to get to these things resolved, or yeah, do you have any sense I, of that?
1: Sure, it, it it I can say comfortably it takes. It generally takes several a couple of years to several years. I mean, I've been there. Have, I've had cases, unfortunately, that have gone on for six or seven years, um, and that is a. And I can sort of explain w- what happens with that. You know, the, we're even though we're not suing the government, we're dealing with government, which is holding on to all of the evidence and information, right? It belongs to the Marine Corps and the Navy, and so what we have to do is go through a legal process of requesting access to it so that we can for example have our experts look at the AAV in this case that's uh, there's a it, to say that it's a bureaucracy is a huge understatement I mean you everyone who's listening to this understands nothing moves quickly uh, when you need it to be done quickly so that process can take a year just to get access it can take longer just to get a hold of what what needs to be looked at like I said, either documents and information or access to the AAB itself. Um, so I have also seen cases where it has taken a year, only a year to get the case to resolution uh, in very clear liability situation. But that is a function of of the, the defendant that you're dealing with. So like you said, um, they have a lot of money. They have insurance companies uh, that have a, a lot of money and they have the resources to, to make these things sort of drag out uh, for a long period of time, we do everything we can to move it forward as quickly as possible. Um, but it does take time, unfortunately.
0: All right. Um, as we kind of wrap this up, sure. um, what haven't I been smart enough to ask you about this specific case um, that you want to make sure that people know either that's significant to the families or your perspective as a lawyer and, you know,
1: as uh, a former Marie. Well, I think good job of asking the good questions. Thank so, um, you know, uh, personally, uh, as a, as a former Marine, um, I just want to say, you know, this is, this is such an important issue. These, the safety issues related to the equipment that people have, the, the, the fact that the military sometimes forgets to look at far enough into the future um, as far as budgeting, um, as far as uh, contemplating what things, uh, what is necessary to, to keep people safe. I mean, that, those are really important issues that get lost sometimes. And what litigation does is it, I think it refocuses people on those, the important people, the people in charge, it refocuses them on that uh, litigation lawsuits have a real, um, as much as we don't like them, as long you know, as much as uh, people have a sense that it's 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 about someone trying to make money, it really does focus people's attention on what's important. And that is safety. Um, as far as the families are concerned, this is a journey for them to try and understand how this could possibly happen to their sons. The they when their sons joined the military, they knew that they were potentially going to be put into danger especially these marines who were taking on uh you know the the real hard work that the marine corps does um and they knew that there could be a time when they they might be deployed and they would be in a dangerous situation they may not come home they knew that was a possibility what they didn't know is that their sons could die when they were at home um you know right down the street essentially um going through training and learning how to do their jobs and it is so devastating for them um and it it really blows their minds because they had they have expectations of our of the marine corps and the military to to be uh you know to be honorable and to be uh knowledgeable and to make good sound decisions we just all agree on that so for them, it's finding the answers that they need to understand how this could possibly happen. And now that they're seeing what went wrong, they want to make sure it never happens again. I mean, th- that's the most important part of all of this.
0: If people are looking to get a hold of you, uh, if they have questions or, or you know, information or have something that they might think is relevant to what you do, um, and again uh, – Tim is a former Marine, so he gets us. He understands the culture. How do they get a hold of you, Tim?
1: Yeah, they can email me. I can give them my email address.
0: Yeah, go ahead. I'll I'll write sure it down is. and put it in 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 this. But uh, go ahead.
1: Sure. I'm going to give you my. It's T A Loringer L O R A N G E R at gmail dot com. That's my personal email, and I'm happy to uh, respond to any questions that people have. If there's anybody, just to add this, if there's anybody who's listening, who's still in the military and they, I want them to just be cautious about, um, you know, about information that they might have. Um, in order for us to get real information from people, we have to go through appropriate process. And I don't want anyone to put themselves in jeopardy. Um, I know that some sometimes I'm approached by people who know something and they want to help, let me know. And I can get a hold of you through the appropriate channels because I just don't want anybody to get themselves in trouble.
0: Right. No. And that's important. That's important.
1: So T a. Loringer, L O R A N G E R at gmail.com. T a Loringer.
0: The, um, all right. Uh, first of all, Tim, um, if you ever would like to come back on and, uh, because again you know these things happen and uh you know both my sons uh marines uh both infantrymen by trade um uh both uh officers and um one of them was involved uh was in uh 3rd battalion 5th marines when mm. they were deployed and the, they had that Osprey crashed he was part yeah. he was part of the Hilo company which was flying, part of them were flying around in Ospreys and so it's um great. By the grace of God, you know, in which three Marines were killed, my son was sleeping when that happened. Wow. Right? And uh, he was not one of the 26 Marines that went into the water, um, though he very easily could have been. And I was in Indianapolis uh, going to my sister's, my younger sister's uh, wedding. And I saw the news headline, um, the Associated Press. And it was probably uh, two and a half, three hours until uh, we found out that he was okay. And easily, probably the longest hours of my life. Yeah, oh, and, I'm sure. Well, and I, um, but my family was lucky, right? Yeah. We were spared, uh, we were spared the fate that, has befallen, you know, not only the families that you're representing, all the other families involved in this, and all the families in all these incidents. That you know, I think, um, and I had this this conversation with both my sons. Hey, you know, the Marine Corps has been, you know, one one of the greatest experiences of my life. And but I've got to tell you the good and the bad. The good is that you know they're going to give you a. Um, I know people are going to think I'm a bad father, but this is what I told them. I said the good is they're going to give you a dress blue uniform that will get you laid at any wedding you ever go to. And if you go to one and don't get laid, you'll be the first Marine Corps in history, first Marine in history that that happens to. Okay? So that's the good news. Okay? Let me give you the bad news. Something bad happens in this world, and you could get sent there, and you'll die in a in a pool of your own blood. Now, the important part is you've got to love this because when you're drowning in your own blood, the thing you shouldn't be thinking is, I hate this job. What you should be thinking is, 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 is damn it, I can't believe this is happening. You know, and and so what we don't expect is for what's happened in this case. And that is if anyone of I don't know how many people that day does anything remotely associate close to their job, my son would still be alive. And That's the cool. torment that these families go through because of that, because the the fundamental mistakes that were made repeatedly that lead to this um are absolutely awful and as a professional marine um i i don't i mean i just um just awful absolutely awful so anytime you would like to come back on and either explain something that's in the news or or talk about uh this issue once again uh let me know because uh you know the airwaves uh, will be yours anytime uh you want them and uh i'd like to wish you all the best of luck in uh in, in making the, making the changes you know um, that you seek in terms of making uh, the vehicle safer, making the egress um, system safer and uh and not sure how you'll you'll impact the maintenance done on them, but I wish all the best in that and and so thank you very much for doing this and uh, and God bless you and what you're doing and again um, for those of you who who didn't get a chance to watch the um, the press conference last Thursday, um, you should watch that. You should watch that because, and especially if you're in the Marine Corps, watch it. Because if for some reason you have it in your head that this is not a life and death business because we're not, not at war, you're out of your mind. Every time you go to train, right, somebody can get dead. Deadly serious business that needs deadly serious leaders that are absolutely devoted, you know, to things that happen on a daily basis, and that's how this thing—that's how these things don't happen. Anything less than that is you're failing your moral obligation to, the, to to the families who give you their sons and daughters and say, "Please take care of them." And and I and I don't say that. I say that partly as a professional, but I, more of that comes from my heart as a father. There's no reason for my son to come back in a casket other than. Right. Somebody outfought you on any given day. And if that's not the case, there's no reason for it. And this stuff has to stop. So. So thank you for coming on and and talk about this, Tim. I I really appreciate it, Um, as well as kind of, uh, you know, the the other things you talked about in in, uh, the other investigations you've been involved in. I hope you don't mind if. Uh, when, you know, maybe legal law or military law cases come up, I hope you don't mind in the future if I bug you about, uh, about coming on and, and, and more than anything else, you know, not so much giving opinions, but just explaining stuff to us.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. That was an excellent summary and uh, I appreciate your thoughts on that. And I'm happy to come back anytime. Just give me a call and uh, I'll reach out to you as well. All right. Okay. Thank you so much.
0: Yep. Yep. No, my privilege. More of Auburn Radio coming up. That was Tim Loringer. More of Auburn Radio coming up. Former aviation-type Marine and uh, and a native of the Golden State. So we're, we're kindred spirits there. More of Auburn Radio coming up next right here on Almarine Radio.